Hi, I'm Lavinia. And I'm Kelly. Welcome to season two of There She Goes, where women writers share true stories of travel, their stories, their experiences told in their own voices. There's a specific kind of magic that happens when women go traveling, and the stories that spring from those experiences are diverse and limitless. Stories of harrowing escapades, quiet epiphanies, powerful connections, transformative moments, and wild possibilities. There She Goes is a storytelling podcast. It's also an invitation to escape, briefly, to some distant elsewhere with a kindred companion. We hope it offers the exact travel infusion you need right now, whatever that looks like. Maybe it's a vicarious journey to hold you over till you're ready to go exploring again, or inspiration for your next adventure. We love sharing these stories and storytellers with you. So pack your bags and settle in, because here we go. This week, in honor of Father's Day, we travel with Allison Singh Ji to Yosemite National Park in California, where she revisits memories of her father and finally musters the strength to stand up to an old nemesis. Allison, a former Time, Inc. journalist, wrote Where the Peacocks Sing, a Hong Kong, India memoir about her discovery that her Indian journalist fiancé grew up in a 19th century palace. She's a professor of creative nonfiction at Scripps College, and her essays have appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Poets and Writers, and Westways. She's working on a new memoir about L.A.'s Chinatown. This is Alison Singh Ji, reading my story, Half Dome. There's a 1950s photograph stuck into a dusty album in my childhood home that always reveals to me who my father once was. In it, he is looking out into a glorious August sky handsome in the way only a 23-year-old can be, with a thick black swath of hair swept back and Hawaiian shirt and slacks on his slim, muscular frame. He sits next to my mother, then 17, his new bride, plucked from a chicken farming family in Sacramento, and before that, fresh off the boat from Hong Kong. She's wearing a hand-sewn skirt with a 22-inch waistband, and a white eyelet blouse, her home-permed hair styled into a wave. They pose in front of a redwood, the sunlight dappling their perfect faces. Yosemite, my mother told me when I was about six, our honeymoon. We drove up from Chinatown in the morning, stayed overnight, and drove back the next day. When I asked her where they lodged, she said, someplace with a funny name. As it turns out, my father's father, then the mayor of Los Angeles's Chinatown, had splashed out for one night at the Iwani for his beloved son and new teenage daughter-in-law. They dined in the Grand Hotel's candlelit hall, and my mother still remembers what they ate. Roast chicken and potatoes for her, and filet mignon served rare for my dad. He rhapsodized about that meal for years afterward with its sprigs of rosemary, slick of melted butter, and its earthly umami. That dinner was California on a plate for him. 
But what truly reveals my father is the emotion beaming from his face. It's pure, rare happiness, uncomplicated by the failed dreams or the eight mouths he would eventually have to feed, the struggles that would later define his life. Here, among the granite gods of the valley, he was an amateur geologist let loose in nature's playground, a homegrown botanist sleuthing down giant sequoias and monkey flowers, a proud American, no other qualifier needed. Away from LA's inner city, my father experienced none of the racial taunts. China boy, go back to where you came from. He had grown so used to expecting. Here he could move freely among the shimmering lakes and towering pines, communing with what he loved most, California shaped by magical hands. By the time his six kids came along, my father seemed to know everything there was to know about the world's greatest national park. Every summer, or as often as we could afford it, my father, Ba as we called him, rented a rickety cabin near the valley floor and as soon as we arrived, our education would begin. In the morning, we set out to conquer waterfalls and trails, visit the ranger station for bear talks and date not bread made by the ranger's wife, and ride our bikes in the shadow of Half Dome. Bob drove us past the monuments and asked us each to claim one. Mine was El Capitan, my lifelong spirit rock. I chose it not just for its sparkling beauty, but because it was more impressive than my brother's half dome. Of course, we weren't the first Chinese Americans to discover Yosemite. A few years back, Yosemite National Park Ranger Yen Yen Chan stumbled across a 19th century photograph of Cantonese laborers. The workmen had been drawn to the West, Gold Mountain, they called it in Canton province, by the promise of mineral riches. In this often hostile new land, some 250 of them had found arduous work building roads to Yosemite during the winter when blizzards pummeled the mountains. But it was Ba who built my road to Yosemite. In the days before Google Maps, my father knew enough to drive us all the way to Tuolumne Meadows. Our mission was to find Soda Springs, where naturally carbonated water bubbled from the earth. Once there, we broke out a pitcher of family sites sachet of raspberry Kool-Aid and eight glasses. Homemade soda, my father proclaimed, filling the vessel with the spring's fizzy water and passing out sips. I remember it tasting like fruity rust. Throughout our hikes in the park, my father regaled us with stories of Sierra adventures uh, by the likes of John Muir, the Donner Party, and Ansel Adams. He paused only long enough to inhale the mountain air and take in the vistas. After all day bounding about in our outdoor classroom, we'd return to the cabin and gather around a picnic table while my father threw chicken legs slathered in hoisin sauce and lap cheng. Chinese sausage, onto the grill. We never had to say it aloud, but it was something we all felt in our bones. Yosemite was a place that accepted us for who we were. With our banged up station wagon, our strange smelling grill foods, we were a raggedy clan of Chinese Americans claiming this California dreamland as our own. I believe my father found his truest self in the valley, 
In fact, until he died in 1999, he kept a black and white portrait of Half Dome in a drugstore frame on the wall, a reminder perhaps that a perfect world really did exist, only a six hour drive away. One day, we putted over to a Yosemite country store and waited in line for fishing licenses. Then we hit the Merced, wading in our swimsuits, bucket hats, and fishing poles. I pulled a trout straight out of the cold, rippling river, its body flipping back and forth in protest, the summer sun glinting off its shiny scales. That night, we grilled my river prize in a frying pan, its moist meat made even more savory with a browned butter jus. The fish was so small, we could have only one bite each. We would surely have gone out foraging through the pine forest for mushrooms before dinner, but my father had recently read a newspaper article about a Laotian family who had done the same thing. They scooped up what they thought was a cache of chanterelles, savory with the tang of mountain earth, but they ended up eating toxic jack-o'-lanterns instead. The whole clan wound up at the Yosemite Valley Hospital, curled into balls of pain, the poison slowly passing through their system. It was during these trips that I began to understand the power of terroir. Not that my nine-year-old self would have known such a fancy word, but I began to connect that the landscape from which our meal was collected and where it was simmered and devoured created its distinct flavors, its history, its soul. The meals we made in Yosemite, branded as our own with the spices and sauces of our Chinese-American household, transformed into cellular memories of this sage-scented terrain. I would never forget the meals I ate in the Glove El Capitan and Half Dome. Those memories of family and food simmered in my mind throughout my life carrying me through my chaotic teen years when our household imploded, when my father disappeared into a fog of delusions, returning to the family table, only to lambast us with the crimes of the moral and academic failures we had so clearly committed. Nobody loves Ba, he would wail, emerging from his bedroom in his striped flannel pajamas and thick black frame glasses, I work so hard for you people, and what do I get in return? It was the recollections of Yosemite summers that also got me through my sister's wayward years as a groupie, my brother's youthful forays into punk rock culture, and the fire sale of my father's dream house in the San Fernando Valley after his bipolar disorder had spiraled so out of control he could no longer work. My gleaming memories of towering rock saviors and meadow picnics kept me reaching for the sun until the day that I could finally take my own family to the valley floor and bicycle with them past Yosemite Falls and around Mirror Lake. Just before that trip, I told my four-year-old daughter, Anais, that we would hike up to Vernal Falls. What Anais didn't know was that I had a secret reason for wanting to hike to the falls. She also didn't know that not all of my Yosemite memories were positive. In fact, Vernal and Nevada Falls had taunted me since I was little. One morning when I was about eight, Ba had led us up to the falls. We are here to conquer the trail, kids, he bellowed to us under a canopy of ancient oaks and sugar pines. But within minutes of setting out, 
he'd sent me back to my mother, waiting on the footbridge below. You're not strong enough for this, he said. Hours after scrambling up the small, steep path, my siblings had returned, all flushed cheeks and beaming accomplishment. It was great, my little brother shouted. Too bad you couldn't come. My mother consoled me with a store-bought hot dog and drumstick ice cream, but even those treats hadn't healed my new wound. From that day forward, the trail lived on in my mind as the granite behemoth I would one day conquer. Now as Anais and I looked at internet photos of the trail up Vernal Falls, my decade-long nemesis, she shook her head. I don't think so, Mommy. You can do this, I cheered. But of course, I was also convincing myself. Three weeks later, on the morning of our scheduled hike, I carefully arranged curried chicken salad sandwiches, paneer tikka and naan, a thermos of lemonade, and an entire blueberry pie into a day pack for the long trek upward. My Indian husband, Ajay, his backpack stuffed with water bottles and mosquito repellent, bounded up the trail's slick steps with Anais. As I heaved our sack of lunch, I felt like an earthbound pack mule to their lithe mountain goats. Halfway up, my knees started to ache. I had to rest. Go on without me, I said, shame flushing my cheeks as I lowered myself onto the mossy steps. I'll see you back down the mountain, at the footbridge. Just go. Are you sure? Ajay asked. I nodded. My family disappeared into the mist and up the mountain. I sat there shaking away the tears. Some 30 years later, the trail had beaten me again. But after a few minutes of rest, a thought flashed through my brain. My daughter would forever remember this day. She and Papa at the top, and Mommy too weak to make it, stumbling back to the footbridge. Rubbing my knees one last time, I willed myself to stand up and get back on the trail. Not this time, Vernal Falls, I muttered, practically shaking my fist at the mountain walls. An hour later, I found my husband and daughter cooling their feet in the sparkling pool between Vernal Falls and Nevada Falls. The total hike had been three hours of climbing, and every sweaty cell within me knew it. Dropping the food sack at last, I ripped off my sneakers and splashed myself with cool water. Then drenched, I spread a woven Indian blanket on the earth and collapsed on top, gazing up into the sky. My father would have loved the mist from the falls and the eternal pines that swayed around us, but most of all, he would have loved the promise of that blueberry pie. I whispered, this one's for you, Ba. The clouds above me shifted. You've been listening to season two of There She Goes, a storytelling podcast created by two women travelers and recorded from their homes in Alabama and Louisiana. Our theme music is a selection from the song City of Refuge, created and performed by Abigail Washburn. Thanks to Jay Burgess for engineering. Thanks to our amazing writers for proving how essential women's narratives are and for bringing their voices to There She Goes. And thanks to you, our listeners, for coming along. Be sure to tell your friends about There She Goes and follow us on your favorite platforms. And most of all, come back for more illuminating stories from around the world. Oh, 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 o